0: Glory be to the Father.
1: Light of the East is also supported
0: by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and easternchristianmedia.com, a A broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Light of the East is also funded by a grant from the Koch Foundation,
1: glory to Jesus Christ welcome to light of the East I'm Father Thomas lawyer your host as the summer days are now upon us more and more and we feel the warmth of the sun and of the weather <laughs> which is very welcoming although sometimes it can become very hot our minds can also be turned towards well actually away from what is really important because the summertime we're very distracted I and mean, it's okay I mean you know, we have many activities. It's the days are longer. You have to wear less clothing. It's so much easier just to throw on a pair of shorts and jump outside and enjoy the weather. And there's a lot of activities. It's all good. But at the same time, and also we're in this so-called ordinary time, they call it that in the West. In the East, we call it the Sundays after Pentecost. But it's easy to become less attentive to what really, really is important. See, we don't have the powerful, incredible liturgical cycle, the great high points of liturgical cycles, such as the Paschal seasons or the Christmas seasons and so on. These things really can keep our focus. But we're, in a sense, on our own. And it's all right. We have to be on our own. We have to know how to make our great liturgical life work for us. But there's something that we need to keep before our eyes. And this is what the great spiritual masters, especially of the East, the Desert Fathers, the monastics would tell us. It's very simple. It almost would sound kind of negative or chilling, but it's very real, very true. And if you think about it, it's really very handy for the spiritual life. The Desert Fathers would say to us, think about your death a few minutes every day. It'll change your life. Now, that might seem kind of depressing. In our culture especially, we tend to want to shield the reality of death, kind of veil it, sugarcoat it, move beyond it as quick as possible. We have a tough time really immersing ourselves in that mystery. And yes, there is a certain, as Peter Kreef, the great Catholic philosopher and writer, would say, there is a certain cosmic obscenity about the fact that death exists and never was meant to be. And this is why Christ's resurrection, which is our resurrection, is so, so important, such a triumphant theme in the life of the church. So it was never meant to be. Christ corrects it. But of course, we still endure a personal death and we will await the general resurrection, the final judgment. But to think about this each day, when you think about that wisdom, it is very wise because it puts everything into perspective. All you have to do is think about it a couple minutes each day. You don't have to dwell on it. We're not trying to be negative, but you think about it. Think about your life, that this was going to be your last breath. Would you be pleased with your life? Are there things that you need to make amends for? Things you need to kind of clean up, wrap up, bring to a certain reconciliation? Are there hopes and dreams? What are you leaving behind? Are you ready to face judgment? These are sobering, sobering questions, I realize, which is why we tend to avoid them. But they're the ultimate questions, let's face it. The ultimate thing is moving into the next life and hopefully we'll make it to heaven with our bodies and souls gloriously reunited and transfigured. In the meantime, though, when we do think about our death, in addition to it, hopefully modifying our behavior and inspiring us to make certain commitments and resolutions, get to confession more, pray more and more ardently, behave better, move beyond our fallen passions, etc., cetera, et cetera, As it makes us do that or helps us to do that, at the same time, just bring up questions as to what really happens to us in the next life. There are different ways of looking at this, not real different, not fundamentally different, but differences in terms of emphasis between the two lungs of the church, East and West. In the Western church, there is the belief in what's called purgatory. Now, characteristic of the West— The West will take a mystery, and it is a mystery. We don't really know exactly. We have lots of information, but we don't know exactly what happens to someone when they pass on. We hope that they're in heaven, and unfortunately, we say this rather, I think, with a certain kind of glibness or insensitivity, actually, sort of of a cavalier where we say, oh, well, they're in heaven. Now they're in a better place. Well, we don't know. We shouldn't say that. That might sound real charitable to say that. It might be something in which we try to console ourselves or somebody else, but we we can have a a safe hope, not so much a presumption, but a, a reasonable hope. Hope. Hope is different than a certainty. Remember, if you're certain, you don't need hope. And hope is also not a presumption. Otherwise, again, you don't need hope. Hope means we have a reasonable expectation of something, although we do not know for certain yet. Now, hope will eventually disappear because we'll have the real thing. Remember those three great virtues, faith, hope, and charity? The one that remains is charity. We won't need hope anymore. We won't need faith anymore because we'll be with God, but we'll always have love and charity forever. So we have a reasonable hope, but we should never say, oh, well, they're in heaven now. They're in a better place. We don't know where they are. And in the East and in the West, as I mentioned, they tend to take a mystery And with great minds and great saints, like St. Thomas Aquinas, there is an an approach that uses a lot of human reason to try to explain things, although they can't be explained entirely, a lot of mysteries can't entirely. But this is helpful, and it certainly has its own merit. So, when it comes to this mystery of what happens to us when we pass on, the West is rather specific in this idea of purgatory, which basically means a time of purgation. That's why it's called purgatory, to purgation. And purgation by, it, the emphasis is, is on like a punishment, a, a kind of a purifying as in fire. And some of the scriptural passages that are used, two in particular, one from the Old Testament, is from 2 Maccabees chapter 12, 44 to 46, where they atone for the dead to free them from sin. In other words, they offered sacrifices for the dead to free them from sin. So going back to the Old Testament, there was a tradition of praying for the dead, that they didn't know where they were, and they'd hope that they were in a good place, but they didn't know for sure, so they would offer sacrifices. Well, of course, we do the same thing in the Christian churches, especially the sacramental churches, especially with the liturgy or the mass, the offering of the Eucharist on behalf of those who are deceased. In the other church, they even had the practice of being baptized For the salvation of somebody you you would become baptized on behalf of somebody well of course yourself but it was very much like a liturgy offering or a mass offering the second passage is from first corinthians chapter 3 verse 15 where saint paul will say in that verse he says that we will be saved but as though through fire in other words there's a period of purgation of a cleansing of a purifying kind of like gold in the furnace and St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, that there are some who will be saved, but only as though going through fire. And this becomes rather specific in the West, where they actually talk about a material or even an immaterial fire. So that's a pretty vivid image. But the idea is that people are cleansed. Because as we also see in the book Revelations, it says that nothing unclean will enter heaven. And think of it this way. Who's in heaven? Who do we know is in heaven? You know, it's the Hall of Fame. Saints. The only people we know are in heaven are saints. So if we want to take our place along with the saints, it'd be like saying, if you want to take your place in the baseball Hall of Fame, shouldn't you have to be an outstanding baseball player? Well, shouldn't it be the same thing with heaven? heaven is for those who are saints, which we all hope to be by what we do in this life and whatever happens to us in the next in route to heaven. In other words, the church east and west doesn't really emphasize this idea that you die and you're going to heaven or to hell, at least not right away, although we can't speak in chronological time in the next life, but we have to do it in this life. So that's how we look at it. We look at it as past, present, future. So the church emphasizes that unless God deems otherwise, for most of what we know, for most people, there is some kind of a place, a period, a state, from the time of the earthly death to the time that they are in heaven, if they are in fact, of course, <laughs> going to be rewarded with heaven. And heaven is not cheap. Like I said, it's it's for the Hall of Famers. So, what happens in between? Well, the West has this idea of purgatory. Does the East have the same idea? Well, As always, East and West arrive at the same fundamental point. They would have to, especially for someone like myself. And my churches, they are Eastern Catholic churches. So we have to accept what the Catholic Church says, because we're part of the Catholic Church. However, we can express it or embrace it in our own particular way. There's a way that we come at some of these things from our Eastern spirituality. And this is important to know, this word emphasis, because... Sometimes it's confused with, oh, we think differently, or we we believe differently, or we don't believe in that. You'll sometimes hear Eastern Christians say, oh, we don't believe in purgatory. Well, that's not exactly accurate. It's not giving the correct picture of things. And I'm going to present how the East looks at things in terms of afterlife when I return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.
0: Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois 60491. And may God grant you... This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco and you are listening to Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian Spirituality and the Significance of Art in the Church.
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We presented in the first part of the program, basically, in a very, very brief way, how the Western Long of the Church wrestles with or articulates this mystery of what happens to us when we die, what exactly happens. Because we can't say automatically, we can't presume to say, oh, the person is in heaven or they're in hell. Eventually, yeah, it will end up with either or. Hopefully, everybody will be saved, and we pray for that. We don't know, but we pray for it. But in the meantime, there is some kind of something else, some other mystery in between. And again, we we arrive at that just logically and also through Scripture and church tradition. In the Eastern churches, they don't use the word purgatory. That doesn't mean they don't believe in something very similar, because again, remember, we arrive at the same point, but it's okay to do it from different ways just like the human race. It's okay for a woman to see something or experience something differently as a woman through her femininity, different than from a man who will experience the same thing through his masculinity. They'll have different perspectives, different sense of it, different experience, but yet it's the same reality. So always keep that in mind. Sometimes people ask me, well, what's the difference between the East and the West? And it's very hard to put that into one succinct phrase, but the closest I come is that we arrive at the same place But we come to it from different emphasis, from different directions, different perspectives. That's all. At least I think that's the simplest way that I can come up with to explain it. So it's not a difference in belief. So what does the Eastern Church believe? Well, if you go back to the Council of Florence, which was in the 15th century, You may recall, if you know anything about that council, that council was actually a very unifying council. In fact, it was one of the great attempts to unify the great schism that happened in 1054 AD. In other words, to bring together the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church back into unity with each other, into Eucharistic communion as it was for a thousand years. And then there was the great divorce, the great schism in 1054 AD. Well, the Council of Florence was a great unifying attempt. It it didn't work on the grassroots level, but it was a noble attempt, and its influence remained, though. It remains even today, this impetus for trying and trying to bring about unity. Well, in this council, what they said about the afterlife, because again, there's going to be a difference of emphasis. The East never accepted entirely the more detailed articulation of purgatory, but Yet the East, just like the West, always acknowledged through its prayer, its liturgy, it always acknowledged that there was, just as the West did, some kind of state or period between our death and our actual entrance into heaven to take our place along with the saints. Now, the East doesn't specify it. Although the East, and this was never accepted as actual doctrine or church teaching in the Eastern churches, but they had something that was rather creative themselves. They called it toll houses. Yes there is actually a rather detailed and pretty imaginative explanation about how the soul passes through different toll houses along the way. and has to pay certain tolls, in other words, kind of amend for their sins. And along the way, the the devils, the demons, would try to sort of kidnap that soul, take them to the underworld, to Hades. And some of this description can be pretty detailed, pretty imaginative. So the East has its own way sometimes of, of uh, explaining things that could be rather imaginative. <laughs> but it was never accepted as the doctrine or dogma of the church. But what's important about that? What's important about that is that underneath it all, both East and West have their own ways of expressing this idea that there has to have been some kind of process. And this is what the Council of Florence said. That there is some kind of purification that goes on after death for most people, unless there's, you know, of course, you know, canonized saints, unless they are canonized saint, but we don't know they're canonized till a little bit later. So there is some kind of purgation. The East, though, does not use so much the terms of punishment or fire or reparation. It uses more of a theme of light, like as though we're we're continuing to transform, to evolve, and. Well, picture the sun, how the sun will bleach certain things out, not because the sun is, is bad, just because it's so powerful, the light is so bright. So it's like the light, increasing light of Christ happening in the soul, in a sense, to, to put it in a, in a kind of analogous way, kind of bleaches out what is imperfect, so the, the growth, this ongoing growth is a little bit less geared towards a punishment or making up for things is it in the East. It's more geared towards this transformation, this theosis, this divinization by means of, of light, of greater and greater light, cleansing and burning out what is not perfect. And the East will not specify too much more than that. As I mentioned, it had this imaginative description of the toll houses, but, which was pretty specific. But again, as a teaching, no, there was never anything very specific. From some of the church fathers, for example, St. Justin Martyr, he says this, that even after death, our souls are still conscious. We expect to receive back our own bodies, although we had been dead and buried in the earth saying as we do that nothing is impossible with God. You would not have believed it possible that from a small drop men could be generated, yet now you see them generated. In the same way, do not consider it impossible for the bodies of men, dissolved and like seeds, fallen into the earth, to rise again in God's appointed time and to put on incorruption. A son of man will come from heaven in glory with his angelic host. He will raise the bodies of all the people who have ever lived and will clothe the worthy, with incorruption. So, the Eastern Church is very strong, not so much on speculating what happens in between, but what will happen in the end. The emphasis is on the resurrection of the body and the reintegration of the human person, and of all of creation in some way, as it says in Revelations. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. In an icon of the Last Judgment, It's interesting, there's a part of the icon, the Byzantine icon of the Last Judgment, that actually, it's a very complex icon, lots of scenery in it. It's almost like watching a movie. There's a scene in there where it shows animals bringing to Christ body parts, human body parts. Now, that might sound grotesque, but actually, it's really quite beautiful. Because what is it saying? It's saying that in the end, all creation will be reintegrated. That even the animals will somehow, as though the animals themselves, creation itself, is helping to reintegrate, reunite the body of the human person with the soul. Remember, animals were created by God as our companions, is to, to help us, to serve us. And so, even in the last judgment, at our final destiny, it's as though the animals were helping us again in our final destiny by helping Christ put back together our person, as body and soul, reintegrated, gloriously transfigured. I think it's a beautiful scene and a beautiful thought. So the East has less of a developed idea of purgatory or description of it and focuses more on what comes at the end and forever. But nonetheless, the East does have a highly developed sense of prayer and of awareness of of this transition period, because the East does a lot of prayer, a lot of serious prayer for the deceased. We offer liturgies. We have five times, five All Souls Saturdays. Well, one is the great one, the great commemoration of All Souls. The other four during Lent commemorate our deceased family members, which we mentioned by name. We have a very elaborate, very deep, and rich funeral service. And praying for the dead is a very big part of Eastern Christian spirituality. And it's all over in our liturgy, in both the audible parts and also the priest's silent prayers. So there is no doubt that even though the East does not use the word purgatory or there are quite as many details, it's not as developed as the West. Nonetheless, and again, there's an example of the meeting point between the two. Nonetheless, there is a highly developed sense of this transitory period after death in which people are in need of prayer. Our praying for the deceased not only offering the ultimate offer, offering to them, the liturgy, the Eucharist, but it's also a way of loving them, of connecting with them. Remember, God is the God of the living and the dead. is actually God of the living. In other words, whether on the, this side of eternity or the next side, we unite together in Christ. It's not like God is over there and we're over here. God is a union of both lives, both realities, the next life and this life. So anything we do with God that connects us with the next life is a way of connecting our life here with those of our relatives and deceased friends and family members who have passed on. This is what's very consoling about our whole theology of life after death, that we can still be intimately connected with our deceased relatives and family members, friends, whomever through the miracle of the Eucharist, of the liturgy. This is why we offer liturgies on behalf of many deceased people. It's it's one of the most common offerings the liturgy is for the deceased. We can offer liturgies, masses, for those who are living, for any intention, but largely people offer it for the deceased. It's a way of being united with them, of loving them, of asking God to remember them forever as only he can do perfectly and without ceasing. It's also very helpful for our grieving. The fact that there is a way that we can still be very charitably and lovingly and intimately united with our loved one. Then maybe if there's things that we perhaps regret, maybe there were some reconciliations that may not have taken place. We can find consolation in the Eucharist because we can pray for that person in the Eucharist. We can pray and ask for forgiveness. We can pray for their salvation. So the afterlife, the mystery of that, is developed in its own way in both lungs of the Church. And as we always say here Light like of the East, we arrive at the same point, but we come to it by different ways from both lungs of the Church, East and West. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.
0: To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. We need EWTN Radio for the reason that Mother Angelica founded this entire enterprise. She always saw this as a spiritual growth network. It was to be an enterprise in media that reached people in all aspects of their life. She saw this as a a holistic approach to reaching the whole person in the middle of the world and bringing them truth
1: and life. Raymond Arroyo thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening.